We have a long text of scripture open in front of us today, all the way from Matthew chapter 26 and verse 30 through to chapter 27 and verse 10. So thank you for your patience in that reading. I don't think the sermon will need be any longer than usual to cover all that ground, though. Most of us are actually pretty familiar with this narrative that we just read, and, and, and yet even if that was your first time reading through the account of Jesus' betrayal and arrest and trial by the Jewish leaders, then you've probably just had the same basic gut-level response to it as those who've heard it a thousand times still would have had just then if they read it again just now. I'm not sure if there's, there's one word to capture that feeling that it gives, but I don't know, it's, it's nauseating. It's distressing. It's devastating. It's just sickening. It's corrupt. It's just wrong. The reading stretches across three pages of our church Bibles, but I tell you, I couldn't find one positive detail to sort of open up with today. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, some kind of light or hope or, or silver lining to, to make this sermon less heavy. The best I could do was, and I don't know if you noticed this, but, but I smuggled in that very first verse, which we actually finished on last week, to at least have a segue, you know, that as they went out from that beautiful Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn together. And then that's it. Whatever that negative word is to, to capture all this, it, it runs right through those three pages. I reckon every time we read that account again, a little part of us wants it to read differently this time. You know, like when you debrief over a movie and, you, and you're just wrestling with all the ways the director could have just made some small change and, and the awful tragedy near the end could have just run some other way. Because when, when something makes us so sick to our gut, our gut response is, is to wish it just wasn't true. Invent a new story. But the awful thing that happened, happened. And we have to come to terms with it. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where this is all heading, of course, it's got to be one of the most well-known stories in the world. And his betrayal and arrest and trial that we just read through today is, is, is part and parcel of that epic history. And yet our first instinct is, is that we just don't want this to be so. If only, if only it might have played out differently. We analyse all the characters and square up all the blame to, to try to make it more palatable. You know, it was all down to the Jews. Or, or maybe it was all down to these religious leaders. You know, if they only understood their scriptures or, or feared God, then, then it would have, would have gone differently. And the next thing we start to do is, is put ourselves into the narrative and think, you know, about how it, I don't know, it might have been different if, if only we had been there. You know, how would I have been able to do something different, steer the story so that it might have gone better here? Or, or you know, would I have been more faithful to Jesus than Peter was? But that kind of understanding of the cross... You know, that it was a tragedy at the hands of sinful men that could have been avoided if, if only the right people were on the scene. That kind of reading actually leaves Jesus' crucifixion as nothing more 
than a triumph of evil over good. And reflecting on what we have come to see about who Jesus is at the start of Matthew's Gospel, it leaves it as nothing more than a triumph of evil over God. But that can't be. So we need to go deeper into the story. It's worth reflecting as we do on why it is that we have those initial kind of responses to these pages of Scripture. Because right through this narrative, the truth couldn't be clearer that this most certainly is not just some kind of awful tragedy. Every one of those subparts to the to the broader narrative we just read through, you know, Peter's denial, the prayer in Gethsemane, the betrayal, the arrest, the desertion, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders, the death of Judas, every component in the broader narrative attests to that one singular and crucial point of witness. It had to happen this way. It had to happen this way. Note very carefully these things as we just scan across the whole thing again. First of all, the narrative repeatedly tells us that this was all prophesied. This was all prophesied long in advance. Verse 31, Jesus quotes the prophet Zechariah who foretold the desertion by the disciples. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Verse 54, Jesus tells them, But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Again, in verse 56, Jesus tells the crowds the same thing. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And flicking over to chapter 27 and verses 9 and 10 at the very end of our reading, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Although the words are even more directly from Zechariah again there. Point is clear, the details of Jesus' betrayal and arrest and desertion by the disciples, these things were all prophesied in, in clear detail centuries beforehand. And Jesus well knew it. A second note too, that aside from his references to those scriptures, Jesus just seems to know. He just seems to know the events that are coming in his mind in, in spectacular detail. Verse 34, look at that. Jesus seems to have already seen all of this unfold in his mind's eye. He even knows the soundtrack. Jesus said to Peter, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Verses 45 and 46, Jesus reminds us again that he has known that Judas will betray him all the while. We saw that last week in, in the first half of this chapter that James preached for us. But later on, check out, if you can, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and you'll see that Jesus knew Judas's betrayal from the moment he first called him as a disciple. And now here in Matthew 26, 45, Jesus even knows that this, right now, this is that moment. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
And again in verse 50, Jesus said to Judah's friend, Do what you came to do. So too, verse 56, just as he foretold, all the disciples left him and fled. And of course, from verse 36, we remember too that Jesus knew ever so clearly the pain, the loneliness and the pain that this was going to bring for him. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Because Jesus knew exactly what was coming. And he had known all along what was coming, what he was about to walk right into at that cross. He'd been trying to teach the disciples since at least chapter 16, if you want to check out the rest of this gospel. And yet here he is in Gethsemane here at the end, getting ready now to submit to its awful moment. This is no tragedy. We should also notice, therefore, that not, not just is it written, not just is it known to Jesus, but so too it is necessary. It is necessary, verse 53. Jesus tells us that in no uncertain terms. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? A legion is six thousand soldiers, by the way. Six thousand. One or two angels might have been enough, but seventy-two thousand ought to deal with an angry mob, we should think. <laughs> but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. 
This is necessary to fulfil God's promises in Scripture. It must be so. So as we get properly deep into this account, beyond that shallow, you know, tragedy kind of reading of this story, we have no choice really but to listen to the narrative itself tell us in, in, in all these different kinds of ways that it had to happen. It had to happen. Our instinctive sense that, that it should somehow have played out any differently is wrong. There's no doubt, though, that the narrative is nevertheless still full of human failure and sin and atrocity. But because there's something far deeper at play here, Jesus submits to that. He submits to that. He allows himself to be taken, as he puts it in verse 45, into the hands of sinners. Imagine that as the next Jonathan Edwards sermon. <laughs> An angry God in the hands of sinners. It's unfathomable, isn't it, to our minds? God, God allowing the evil he hates to triumph like this over him. I mean, look at these two scenes from verse 47 through 67. Mobs and swords and clubs, beatings, spitting, false witness and, and binding and contemning to death. Jesus, Jesus, who is God with us. And of course, the wicked plotting beforehand that we looked at last week, the, the plotting to, to bring this into being. And then if we flick to the end of today's reading, we see yeah, this wicked and callous lack of, of concern about Jesus' innocence. Look at chapter 27 and, and verse 4. Oh my word. Judas said to the wicked religious leaders, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? Why should they care that Jesus was innocent? And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. They know that this is evil and wrong. They just don't care. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called to this day the field of blood the field of Jesus' blood, that is. Bought with the, the unwanted money that they had paid to shed his innocent blood. But all of that evil in the narrative doesn't overcome God. God allows these evil things. He allows this small triumph of evil here for his greater purposes. And Jesus submits to these sinful hands. 
but he doesn't concede anything to them, nor does he encourage them, nor does he even really engage with them, we'd have to say. I mean, there's no retaliation or defence at his arrest, verses 52 to 56, nothing. Even though uh, he could have resisted or retaliated or defended, nothing. No response to the false witnesses brought against him, verse 63. Jesus remained silent. Have you nothing to say? Silence. And then there's no compliance with the chief priest either, let alone any bargaining or or, or defending himself. Verse 64, when the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. I cannot imagine a stronger demand be put on someone by the chief priest of the nation. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus dismisses him. You have said so. In the original Greek, it's even blunter. You say. You say. It's exactly what he had said to sinful Judas back in verse 25. It's exactly what he'll say uh, to Pilate next week when we come back to this narrative. You say. You say. I'm not even sure what Jesus means with that. Other than what he certainly isn't doing with that language is engaging with these people in any, in any real way. Jesus just seems to dismiss all of these things as, as just necessary steps along the way to where he must go. And then he gives Caiaphas the truth, which Caiaphas, of course, interprets as blasphemy. So Jesus' whole contribution to this process is just to declare the truth about him to bring about this cross that must be so. He otherwise doesn't really engage the chief priest. And taken into custody then by the, the soldiers, he needn't respond to these wicked men who, who so insolently demand that he prophesy as to who's hitting him, verse 68. Even though, of course, we'd assume that he could have, given how well he seems to have known the various other details in advance. Now, Jesus is not engaging here. He doesn't resist any of this wickedness at all. These things must be so, as Jesus himself said. These things must be so, and they will come through his submission into these sinful hands. And that's a very different thing to a tragedy brought about by sinful hands. God's perfect plan is being worked out through all this evil, and Jesus is willing to submit to it. And yet even still, even though the narrative keeps you know, hammering this point that this was all known to Jesus in advance and written in the scriptures and had to be this way, that that small part of us probably still sometimes asks the question, you know, couldn't it have somehow played out differently? Jesus verbalizes the question for us in in Gethsemane there in verse 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Again in verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, and again in verse 44, he prayed the same thing. He reminds us with these prayers that, 
you know what? He's also fully human, just in case we forgot. He's not just fully divine. He's also fully human, and he knows how well, how difficult this horror that's coming is going to be for him. And so too in these prayers, he demonstrates his submission to the Father's will, that he should submit himself into the hands of these sinners and, and step right into this awful horror. But so too, he's also asking that question for us. Must it be so? Must it be so? Yes. So as we get deep enough into this uncomfortable narrative, the only question that it really leaves for us is, why? Why must it be so, Jesus? Why does Jesus submit so willingly, so quietly into the hands of sinners when he knows so well exactly what it's going to mean for him? Why was it foretold long ago by God's prophets that Jesus would do this? The uncomfortable answer is that there's simply no other way forward. Lest you and I and everyone in the narrative and everyone else in all of history should be cut off from God entirely and left to fend for ourselves in what would be a truly awful story. Because here's what's going on in the backstory to all of this in Matthew 26. Every one of us has sinful hands. Everyone in this narrative and everyone ever is fallen in sin. That, that's the backstory here. You see, we create a very false and a very dangerous boundary between us and them when, when we kind of, you know, make out as if it's just these kinds of people in the narrative that are the problem. You know, the angry mobs, the wicked religious leaders. We subconsciously like these Caiaphas figures, I think, because, you know, those guys let us move that false boundary way over there somewhere. We would never have done something like Caiaphas did, condemning Jesus to death. We put Peter on a safe side of that boundary, probably. He just had a weak moment there. It's understandable. He, he wasn't a sinner like Caiaphas. And we quietly put ourselves even this side of Peter when we say things like, well, I wouldn't have had even that weak moment like Peter there, had it been me there. And yet I'm sorry, but beyond this one incident here, Peter is categorically a sinner. And so too are you and I. And we can know that from this narrative right here because of the simple and painful fact that this was necessary for Jesus to go through with this. Because if there was anyone without sin, anyone who doesn't have sinful hands, anyone who is loyal to God, then I tell you, Jesus doesn't need to do this, does he? If there was anyone like that, then, then couldn't Jesus have just gone around calling those people as his disciples? You know, and all those perfect people could, could just gather around Jesus and live happily with God ever after, for all eternity, without any need of this horrific, uh, sickening cross that we know is coming. But there is no one like that. That's the problem. That's the backstory here. There is no one like that. No one is without sin. No one 
is loyal to God. The true difference between Caiaphas and Peter at this point in, in Matthew 26 is, is that Peter knows full well what the chief priest has just chosen to reject about who Jesus is. Because it was right at the centre of Matthew's Gospel, if you get time later, in chapter 16. It was Peter who made the full and extraordinary confession of just who this Jesus is. I'll read it to you, Matthew sixteen thirteen. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The very words, verse 63 in our text today, that the chief priest wants Jesus to concede and admit. Peter knows of Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet in the whole story, Peter doesn't just need to know who Jesus is to be found in a different category to Caiaphas. Peter needs Jesus to die for his sin. Peter needs Jesus to die for his sin, just like the rest of us. Otherwise, Jesus needn't say here, it must be so. And he needn't submit to this evil and make it so. This is the heart of the gospel, you see, not just who Jesus is, but what Jesus did for us. And we too, like Peter or Caiaphas, are are sinful just by our very fallen nature. We are sinful. And there's nothing we can do to change that. But Jesus came like this, like, you know, the Son of God taking on our human form. He came for this simple reason, so that he could die a death that would absorb the judgment our sin deserves. Jesus submitted to this. He submitted his perfect nature into the hands of sinners. Because in doing this, the judgment that God must carry out against our sin could be diverted away from us and and onto himself. That's the gospel. And as uncomfortable as it may be, because it points out our sin... It simply is this way. Because we are all sinners. We are all sinners. And this is God's entire and beautiful plan to save us from the judgment our sin deserves. And praise God, it is so. Praise God, it is so for all who but receive it. Because Jesus submitted The only boundary is not where our relative sinfulness stands in relation to other people's sinfulness, but where we stand in relation to Jesus, who chose to die to carry the judgment for our sin. When that small part of us still yearns for these pages to be, I don't know, some kind of mistake or tragedy, 
we really ought to probe and, and question deeply where that thought is coming from. Perhaps, I don't know if I can quote the Jedi, you know, our thoughts betray us. Our thoughts betray us. Perhaps way, way, way deep, deep down, there is still some small part of us that just hasn't yet come to fully appreciate the utter need for this gospel right to the very core of our being that makes Jesus so willingly walk into this moment. Perhaps we are still just a little bit blind to the true depth of our sin. Be sure to catch the urgency of this matter, where we stand in relation to Jesus and his gospel, because he submits himself here to be judged by these sinners, knowing full well that it is he who will come back to judge sinners. In verse 64 he tells Caiaphas, From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Presumably with at least 72,000 angels, verse 53, Jesus will come again to judge the sin of the world. He knows full well in all of this as he steps into this horror. He knows full well where the judgment should be falling. But he lets it fall on him here. On behalf of all who will trust him and be saved from that judgment when it comes. So hear this gospel call with urgency today. If we don't examine ourselves properly and and concede that we too are sinners and then let the judgment we deserve fall on Jesus, then our judgment must otherwise fall on us. Sin will not go unchecked in the final account. Either our judgment fell on Jesus or it will fall on us. So examine, confess, come to Jesus and and receive God's gracious gospel if you haven't received it already. If you have already done so, then then take this familiar passage of scripture and and hear it again today as, as gospel comfort. Gospel comfort playing so sweetly and so softly for you today. Remember and rejoice that Jesus chose to do this for you. When you're reminded of of your helpless state, when you get stuck in those stages of examining your sin and, and confessing your sin, remember too how this gospel ends. Jesus submitted and did this for your sins. So come fully into the forgiveness too and, and the release from judgment and, and the perfect assurance that, that Jesus didn't bail, didn't fail, didn't answer back or start splitting hairs about God's promised plan for you. He just humbly and quietly went and took your judgment for you. So this is your certain salvation in Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we have your scripture so 
available to us and that we can have it open and sit here and read it together today, Father. We thank you for the gospel that is leaping off the pages to us at the end of Matthew here. We pray that you would you would please help us to read and read and read again these scriptures and, and, and never never be comfortable about this part of the narrative, but nevertheless forever be comforted by it because you have loved us so much in this. Jesus has been so perfectly faithful for us in this. So, so teach us to rejoice. Teach us to, to see our heart clearly. Confess our sin so, so honestly and, and put all our hope in this certain salvation that Jesus has won for us. Write it on our hearts, Father, as sure as his very name. Amen.